Morning, everyone. Thank you, Sam. If you have a Bible, could I invite you to turn to uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 41. It's page 1094 in the, in the Pew Bibles. I know you've just sat down, but as we often do, I'd like to invite you to stand again for the public reading of God's Word. So let's stand together. Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 41. Those who accepted his message, and his was Peter's message about Jesus, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the wonders, the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with great joy or with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Grab a seat. There is no such thing as the perfect church. I know that's going to come as a shock to some, uh, but there isn't. It's true. And I'm sure we've all heard the follow-up comment that even if you find the perfect church and then join it, it won't be perfect anymore. Now, although that's, that's right, there is no such thing as the perfect church. But there is such a thing as a good church. Or maybe a better, more appropriate word would be healthy. But how do you know? What, what are the characteristics? What are the vital signs of a healthy and a vibrant and a thriving church? That first church in Jerusalem that we've just read about is sometimes referred to as the perfect church, but it wasn't. And we'll discover why it wasn't a little later. But although it wasn't the perfect church, it was a good church. It's actually a great church, very healthy church. And as you read those familiar verses, you discover seven things that, that characterize that hub of Christian community and, and worship. And as we identify them, I want us this morning to ask ourselves, and I want us to be really honest, is Windsor that kind of place? That kind of church? Are these seven things present here? Now, I, I know that we spent a whole Sunday evening series called Vital Signs in these verses. Plus, on Back to Church Sunday in September 2013, we looked at them again. But as we continue our Up, In, and Out series in, in Acts, we've got to look at these. We need to remind ourselves of these. For anyone who, who's visiting, this is our Up, In, and Out triangle that we're using during this current series to emphasize and remind us of the importance of our relationship at three levels. Our relationship in three different directions, with God, 
with each other and with our neighbor. And remember, our neighbor includes the stranger, the other, even our our enemies. This, if you like, is a visual diagram of discipleship. And what we're we're continually asking ourselves is, is how how is each of those relationships in your life? How's your relationship with God this morning? How's your relationship with, with your family here? How is your relationship with your neighbor? And as we think about these verses from Acts 2, and if you set them against this triangle, you discover that all three dimensions are in, come into play. There, there's a very definite and clear upward focus because these verses refer to this church's worship and prayer life. But there's also the inward aspect Because these verses describe how this new community of believers did church, how they were church, how they related to one another. Plus, there's an explicit outward dimension because as these new believers come together and as they worship and as they do church, these verses tell us that it made an impact beyond their walls. People were drawn to them. People were drawn to their God. And so you read at the end that the Lord just kept adding to their number those who were being saved. And so, if you like, there's something here that reveals and provides a kind of blueprint for what it means to be church, what it means to do church. But before we identify these these kind of seven characteristics and vital signs and practices, let's set the scene. Let's, let's look at what has actually happened just before this new church has got up and running. And so we discover that, that, that Jesus has left the building. And he said it was better for him to do that. It's, it's a constant kind of like question. How could it have been better for Jesus to leave them? But Jesus himself said it was better that I go. So Jesus has left the building. And in Acts 1, we read of his dramatic return to heaven to be with his father. But before he left, he gave his disciples this exciting promise, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And so we know the disciples go off and they can huddle together and they wait. But there's an active dimension to their waiting. They don't just sit around doing nothing. They pray. They wait And they pray. And at the beginning of Acts 2, the wait is over. The promise is fulfilled. The Holy Spirit powerfully comes upon the gathered disciples. And they miraculously start speaking in various and different languages, which enables those who have traveled from all over the known world to understand exactly what they're saying, despite the fact that these Galileans can't normally speak in these people's heart language. And so people are bewildered and they're perplexed and they're amazed and they're confused. And some of them even take the mickey because they're convinced these disciples are drunk because it's only nine o'clock in the morning morning and they're off their heads. 
And in the midst of all this commotion and confusion, the apostle Peter, it says, jumps to his feet and he delivers this impassioned speech and he explains all these signs and wonders. And he makes a powerful case for Jesus and for his resurrection. And we read that his speech has an instant impact. And it creates what can only be described as mass revival. People are cut to the heart, it says in verse 37. And people hear this impassioned speech and they say, okay, what must we do? And Peter says, well, you need to repent and be baptized. And then we read that incredibly 3,000 people do exactly that. 3,000 people commit to the Christian faith and join the existing 120. And so this new, big, mega big church is found in Jerusalem. And in verses 42 to 47, we we read a vivid description of what it was like and, and what was kind of happening And why it grew. And I want to suggest that these seven things still need to happen. At some level and in some way in every local church, certainly in this one. Other things can happen alongside these. They can complement them. They can supplement them. But these seven need to be practiced pursued and protected in order for us, Windsor Baptist, to be an authentic, spirit-infused church where God is glorified. And that, that is our desire, that in everything we do, God is glorified. That this is not just some kind of club. That this hopefully is a hub of Christian community and worship where the Spirit lives and is alive and where God is glorified. And then, then, people just might be drawn here. Seven characteristics. And as we go through these, what I want to do is I kind of want to hold up God's Word as a mirror which, which is what James won. If you were here last Sunday night, you will know this is kind of one of the images that the Bible uses to describe itself. It's a mirror. And so what I want to do this morning is kind of hold up God's word as a mirror and see what it reflects back about this place. But also, what does it reflect back about me? What does it reflect back about you? Because at the end of the day, church church is not a building. Church church is us. Church church is every single one of you. So let's look at these seven characters. What What is reflected back about me? The first four are found in verse 42 alone. To start with, it was a place of teaching. People listened, it says, as the apostles shared and communicated God's word. And church needs to be a community where this living, active, God-breathed word, which we hold in our hands, is central and where it's explained and where it's shared. Now, I know there are different models to how this is done and different methods. 
And there's a variety of styles and preferences. And there's always, always room for huge amounts of improvement and the development of gifting and skill. But however it happens, in whatever format, format, God's Word, the Bible needs to be taught and needs to be heard. And this slot, the sermon, which happens here every Sunday and often twice, is one key aspect of that listening. Now, I realize we've all heard and listened to a number of dull and irrelevant sermons. Some of you are thinking, I'm listening to one now. But as Kenton, and I've shared this before, but as Kenton Anderson says, some of us have heard a lot of boring sermons preached from the Bible. But the answer to the problem is not to abandon the Bible, but to improve our quality of our preaching. We desperately need to hear from God today. We desperately need to hear from God today in our culture and context. And the primary way of listening to the heart of God is via the reading, the preaching, and the teaching of the Bible. God's life-altering, essential, guiding, sustaining, sharp, illuminating, refining, constructing, deconstructing word. Church needs to be a place where people encounter God through the teaching of Scripture. How are we doing? How are we doing? Second thing that happened and existed in this church was fellowship. It's one of those words, means different things to different people, and maybe nothing to most today. As the late John Stott said, there is a constant tendency for the meaning of words to be distorted and for their currency to be devalued so that words which once throbbed with life are now dead or dying. This is the case with the word fellowship. It's an overworked and overvalued term. Do you know to fully or really or totally understand fellowship would take quite a while? That's why we did a whole series looking at each of these and we spent the whole evening looking at fellowship. But the primary notion here, the primary notion, and I'm kind of condensing this as much as I can, the primary notion here is relationship. This is about belonging to Jesus and belonging to each other. This is about shared life. This is about being something, being part of something bigger than yourself. It's about community. And many people today are crying out for that, a sense of belonging, a sense of being connected. It's about looking out for one another and being there for one another. And throughout the New Testament, you come across, and I know I keep banging on about these one another's to the point where I know some of you are fed up listening to them. But we come across these numerous one another's in the New Testament, which are meant to enhance and fuel our togetherness, meant to teach us what does it mean to live in fellowship. It's more than what happens during coffee time. Here is what it is meant. Here is what it means to be in fellowship. Here is what it means to share life. Here is what it means to belong to Jesus and to belong to each other. We serve one another. We encourage one another. We teach and admonish one another. We confess our sins to one another. 
We pray for one another. We bear with one another. We're kind to one another. We comfort one another. We forgive one another. A church, an authentic, healthy, spirit-infused, God-glorifying church needs to be a place where these are happening. Again, I ask, how are we doing? The third characteristic found in verse 42, the breaking of bread. Now, I know, I know that meant more than communion. But it included it. An integral part of their meeting and eating together would have featured bread and wine. An opportunity for them as a community to pause and to remember the sacrifice of Jesus, to renew their commitment, to celebrate their salvation. And as a church and a community of people, we need to constantly keep coming back to the cross. To that place of forgiveness and renewal. That place of examination. Honest to God, heart examination and forgiveness. And therefore, every week, we we find ourselves, either morning or evening, gathering around this table, the Lord's table, inviting people to eat and to drink in remembrance of Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. And so we'll do it again tonight. Because church has got to be a place where this is a core feature. How are we doing? How are you doing with these practices? What's your engagement with God's word like? What's your engagement with one another like? What's your engagement around this table like? Fourthly, end of verse 42, it was a place of prayer. It was a community where they entered into and enjoyed dialogue with a living God. They cried out to him on behalf of others and themselves. And church needs to be a place where expressions of praise and petition are brought and spoken. A place where we articulate our need of divine help and intervention. Prayer is a spiritual lifeline. We've said that so many times. It's an awesome privilege. And therefore, it's got to be part and parcel of what we do together. We need to create opportunities where we are led in prayer like Sam did with us this morning and and have opportunities where people are encouraged and enabled to engage in prayer with one another. And therefore, again, I invite you, I encourage you to come along on Wednesday night. Let's do this together. Let's be church. How are we doing? Now, let's pause for a moment because it wasn't just a case that in Jerusalem these four things were happening occurring, teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, prayer. What is critical to note is that in this church, these people, according to the start of verse 42, were devoted to these things. And, and that's, that's actually the, the bigger challenge. It's, it's not that they're actually done here. It's not that we're just doing them. Are we passionate about them? Are we as a church devoted to these things? Are you committed to these things? 
How does my Christian life from week to week reflect my commitment to the teaching of God's word, to the sharing of life, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer? The church in Acts 2 were sold out on these things. And what happened? The church grew. The next three things. It's great Sam handed it over to me really early this morning. I can just keep going for ages, you know. I'm only joking. We'll be, we'll be done by half past. Let's look at the next three things. The fifth is wide-eyed wonder. Verse 43, everyone was filled with awe. Or in another translation, it says that awe came upon every soul. That word awe refers to holy fear. A holy fear in response to the presence and activity of God. And it describes the feeling, or rather the attitude and reality of reverence, that comes whenever you realize God's here. This has got to be about more than just a bunch of people meeting together on a Sunday morning. We do this because we, we, we honestly believe God is here. And whenever you come to that place of prioritizing the presence of God, then you stand in wide-eyed wonder, amazed. Do you know incredible wonders and signs were taking place, it says, in this church, performed by the apostles, but it's really important to know that people were in awe of God, not of the apostles. Church is not about what we do. It's about what God is doing among us. Church needs to be a place where true worship flows, where God is the focus of all that is said and done, where God is exalted, God is glorified, God is celebrated for who he is, what he's done, what he's doing. It's all about Jesus. said that a couple of weeks ago. We were created to worship, and I've called us back, and I keep calling us back, and I call myself back to the heart of worship because it's all about you, Jesus. And a church needs to be a place where people stand in awe, in wide-eyed wonder of Jesus. John Ortberg, I need to worship because without it, I lose a sense of wonder and gratitude, and I plod through life with blinkers on. Church should be a, should be a place where the blinkers come off and where praise rises and where you find the group of people who worship God in spirit and in truth. How are we doing? How has our worship to God been this morning? How will it be next Sunday night when we set aside a service, engage in worship, and we gather and we just sing our hearts out to God? The sixth thing, nearly done, sixth thing that church needs to be is a place of love. 
And as you look at verses 44 and 45, you discover that practical, tangible, active, sacrificial love spilled out of this community. Here was love in action. These people responded to the needs of those around them. They opened their hearts. They opened their homes. They became increasingly aware of those who around them who needed help and hospitality. And they gave accordingly and they shared their resources. And an authentic church should be the kind of place where love permeates the community. And whenever church is like that, whenever church is like that, people start to sit up and take notice because as Jesus said, and this is the end dimension, it's by your love for one another that others will know you are my disciples. And then finally, church needs to be a place of joy. Verse 46 in the New Living Translation says, they worshiped together, they met in homes, they shared meals with great joy. Do you know a church should be a community characterized by a deep and an intense joy? Not, not, not a happiness that happens, that kind of depends on our circumstances and what's going on around us, but a joy that abides, that resides under the surface and creates content. Is that us? And how can we ensure that this increasingly describes Windsor Baptist? A place of teaching, of fellowship, of breaking of bread, of prayer, wide-eyed wonder, of love, and of joy. But I want to be real this morning. I hope I have been already. But I didn't want anyone to leave here this morning and think, you know something, that church in Jerusalem was perfect. And if only, if only, because I hear this sometimes, if only we could be exactly like them. And if only we could do exactly what they were doing, then life would be so much better. And at one level, it would. But let's jump forward to Acts 4, verse 32. And I'm going to read a little bit more of their story. All the believers were one in heart and mind. Great. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Brilliant. Joseph, do you remember him from last week? The guy with the nickname, Barnabas, son of encouragement. He sold a field that he owned and he brought the money and he put it at the apostles' feet. Sharing. Chapter 5. Now a man named Ananias together with his wife Sapphira also sold a piece of property. And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself. And he brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money that you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not just lied to human beings, but you've lied to God. 
And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And then one of the most understated comments, a great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Verse 7, about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Imagine the situation. Peter asked her, tell me this. Is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said. That's the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the Spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door. They're going to carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down and died. And then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Now, there's a whole sermon in there. (laughs) But all I wanted to highlight and admit to this morning was the reality that even in good churches, even within healthy Christian communities, disaster can strike, rubbish happens, and people mess up. That's not to excuse it. That's not to say we should expect it or accept it or not be surprised by it. But it's also to recognize that people and the church will make mistakes, will create confusion, will hurt you, will disappoint. Because you see, like any family, church can be pretty dysfunctional at times. And so I know, I know there will be people here who've been hurt by church and disappointed and confused and disillusioned. I know I will disappoint the majority of you at all sorts of levels and for all kinds of reasons. And I'll guarantee you that any of us who have been part of any church for any length of time will wonder, what is going on here? We will query, we will doubt certain things and certain decisions and certain events and certain moments. The church in Jerusalem was a great church, but it wasn't perfect. And this tragic incident exposes that all too well. You know, at one level, it is so hard to get our heads around Acts chapter 5 and those first 11 verses. The consequences were extreme, particularly for two of its members. But what this does reveal to me, apart from the fact that there's no such thing as a perfect church, apart from the fact that, yes, people do mess up, church does disappoint Church can be dysfunctional at times. But beyond that, what this incident illustrates, and here, if you like, are two more vital signs of a healthy church. 
Holiness matters, and lying has no place. Do you know, holiness is not an optional extra for church. If we take God seriously, then God takes us seriously. We can't and must never play fast and loose with God. Throughout Scripture, there is this sobering sense of dangerous holiness when it comes to the things of God. Here's just a few examples. In Leviticus 10, we read about Aaron's two sons who decided, you know something, we're just going to do our own thing in the sanctuary. We're going to kind of infringe upon the holiness of this place. And what happens to those two boys? They end up being consumed by fire. And in Joshua 7, we read about Achan, who decides, I'm going to keep a wee bit of this like plunder for myself, and he buries it. And he thinks, nobody knows, nobody sees that. I've given most of it over, but like I'm just hanging, holding a wee bit back for myself. And what happens? He ends up dead. Second Chronicles 26, King Uzziah crosses a line. He burns incense in the temple when he wasn't meant to. It wasn't his place. It says God strikes him down with leprosy. See, holiness matters. And whenever any church, whenever this church, whenever I think it doesn't, or if I forget that my, the part of the call in my life, part of the call in our life is to be holy as God is holy. Whenever we think that holiness doesn't matter, we're on dangerous ground. And connected to this is the reminder that we need to be a community of truth tellers, that lying to one another And deceit and cover-up has no place amongst the people of God. Do you know why? It wrecks relationships. It wrecks our relationship with God up. It wrecks our relationship with one another in. It wrecks our witness out. There's no such thing as the perfect church. Never has been. And people will get it wrong and people will disappoint us. But let's aim to be And it's my hope and prayer that Windsor Baptist will increasingly be a community characterized by these nine things. And this morning, individually, may each of us before God consider our personal devotion to each of them. Because when it comes to our up, in, and out relationships, these nine things... And our attitude to them and our commitment to them will have a profound impact on our discipleship. Let's pray.